Hello and welcome to the Drug Policy Voices podcast. This is an ESRC-funded research project which aims to engage people who use drugs into debates about drug policy. Each month we'll speak about the findings of our research, discuss the hot topics connected to drug use and drug policy, and talk about the ways in which you can participate in our research. Our vision is to educate, inform and amplify your voices. To find out more information about us, including research ethics, privacy statements and where to go for advice and support, you can visit our website at www.drugpolicyvoices.co.uk. Hello listeners, welcome to episode four. In this episode, we're talking about drug supply networks. We speak to Dr. Mike Salinas from MMU based on his 15-year study of drug supply networks in the UK and his expertise in the field. Then in the second part, Melissa and I speak about the criminal law and the distinctions between possession and supply and how recently published sentencing guidelines have changed and why. We really hope you enjoy the episode. It's my immense pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Mike Salinas, who is a senior lecturer in criminology here at Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, Mike has a special interest in offending careers over the life course. So why people start, why people continue and why people stop. So what we call onset persistence and desistance from crime. So uh, Mike and I studied for our PhDs together at the University of Manchester and I've invited him here today to talk about his research in drug supply. So he studied various levels of the supply chain from retail, wholesale, import and export. And we're going to talk about the user-dealer relationship. Um, okay, so hello, Mike. Hey, Bex. <laughs> nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So um, thank you for coming in today. And um, can you tell our listeners a bit about your research, please? So I've been engaged in what's known as ethnographic fieldwork. So that's been embedded within uh, particular groups, in this case, embedded within uh, drug supply networks, interviewing uh, people involved in supply or the customers, uh, observing, uh, analysing the finances, looking at basically the mechanics of the market, how does it operate, how do these, you know, what's the logistics of the trade, and then looking at the individuals, what is the motives for these individuals, whether they start, escalate their offending or stop, and um, looking at their relationships with one another, basically how, how are these networks structured, what are they based on, how fluid are they, um, you know, um, things like that. So for the last 15 years at least, that's what my research has been focused on. I've looked at individuals who operate in a range of markets uh, and at different stages of the supply chain. So in terms of what we'll be talking about mainly today, that's markets that are consumer focused they deal to the end user so this is what we would call retail sales you know just like any other retailer it's selling direct to the consumers so i've looked at uh people involved in delivery services so people who operate drop-off services whether it's for grams of cocaine in the city centers or 20 bags of cannabis um to users that's the where the majority of people of research, that's the, the main sort of occupation, criminal occupation they've had. I've also looked at um, individuals who've been involved in the sort of burgeoning drug markets in Ibiza. So this is where Brits go abroad to work, um, ostensibly in the sort of summer holiday economy, but end up 
being involved in supply to British holidaymakers or being involved in the supply of drugs to other seasonal British workers there. So I've looked at yeah the Ibiza drug markets and I've also looked at the supply of mainly steroids, but what comes under the broader term of image and uh, performance-enhancing drugs, so human growth hormone, steroids, and then sort of all the other ancillary drugs that these people take. And I've looked at this in this, uh, the network of sort of, in the context, sorry, of the sort of hardcore gym, the sort of, you know, spit and sawdust kind of gyms uh, and the supply there. Why are people involved in the supply chain? You just said then that, um, you know, some people are uncommitted. So why people? Why are people involved? I don't want to just talk, about, although I will largely talk about my research, it's always worth sort of, you know, I don't want to give a biased view of what the illicit drugs economy looks like. And there is a range of motives and reasons why people are involved. And if you look at the, the empirical literature, so you look at other people and other studies, there's a whole, you know, a uh, range of reasons why people supply drugs. Now, for many, it's simply to underwrite their own... If we're talking about retail drug dealers here, yeah. so we're not talking about the other stages of the supply chain, yeah. but many people who supply drugs, for instance, heroin or crack or um, ecstasy tablets on the weekend, they do it to underwrite their own drug use. So it's simply a way of ensuring you get you know, a free smoke or your pills paid for on mm-hmm. Friday night or that you have your own supply of heroin, if you're a heavy heroin user. So a lot of people sell not as a means of making, you know, big money and driving Mercedes-Benz. A lot of people supply drugs purely to underwrite what is an expensive habit. Yeah. You also have people, if you look at research that has been undertaken, particularly in, say, the United States, um, there's been more research looking at supply networks among more privileged groups. And they might supply not out of financial necessity. They don't have that financial need to supply. They do it for the kudos that comes. There is a certain um, being seen and presenting yourself as kind of like a gangster or someone who's a bit street. You sell drugs and therefore, you know, the kudos have been a bit defiant. So there are some people who deal for that reason. There are other people who do it as a form of, say, um, sorting friends. So social reciprocity social mm. Good yeah word. Uh, which i don't think i said right but <laughs> it's it's basically you're doing a favor for a friend so mm. if i supp- you know if i'm going out to a club uh, this friday i'll get the pills in this week mm-hmm. and then potentially uh, for no profit i'm just supplying my friends it's still a supply offense because i know that you know next week um one of my friends picks up cannabis like you know two ounces of cannabis and they'll distribute it amongst the friendship network so they won't be driven by profit anyway. Mm. So there, there is a diverse range of motives that's there. But mm. when we're talking about the people I was looking at, almost exclusively, it came down to one simple motive, which shouldn't really surprise people, but it was the financial motive. You know, mm. uh, drug dealing for these guys who were all working class, all from non-affluent families, but hardworking families. You know, mm. they, these weren't like highly destitute families. Mm. Um, it just provided them an income. They could not hope to uh, attain any other way through legal work or legal business. It provided incomes, if you were, say, a cannabis dealer, just supplying a friendship network, and as long as you weren't using lots of the drug yourself, easily clearing what we would call a net profit, so that's after paying for the drugs and expenses, 
you could be making about £300 a week, mm. which isn't, again, that sort of money people assume drug dealers, profit-motivated dealers would earn. Mm. But £300 a week for someone who's in, say, their early 20s, particularly mm. in a bit of an unstable job climate, mm. is, is a good sum of money. And particularly if that £300 is supplementing a legal job. Mm. So if you're working in a retail shop or you're working in a fast food takeout, well, an extra £300 is a significant boost to your income. Mm. Um, you add other people, the cocaine, even the cocaine delivery boys, who could earn net profit of about 800 to 1200 a week. So that's mm. after paying everything. So this is, again, these are significant sums to these individuals. They may not be the riches that people assume drug dealers earn, but these are people, working class people, uh, many of whom don't have a huge array of opportunities at that age or at that time, um, earning salaries that are akin to professors at a university or general surgeons or senior teachers. Mm. You know, they were earning and they were afforded the sort of freedoms, the financial freedom that comes with earning that money. The most profitable of all the dealers was one of the cocaine wholesalers. He earned more in a given week than even the importers who kind of, their sales were intermittent. The cocaine wholesaler net profits were about 3,000 a week at his peak. And with that money, you are talking about, you know, um, quite elevated uh, lifestyle that you can live. And yeah, so it was financial. There was no other way that these individuals were going to earn that money at that point in their lives. So how much was violence involved in the networks that you've studied? Uh, In answer to that, I think... Again, I need to ground it in the broader market. So violence and serious forms of violence are ubiquitous in certain drug markets, in certain retail drug markets. Um, That's undeniable. You will see high rates of violence associated often with street markets. If we're talking about certain markets, crack markets, heroin markets. And there's been some really interesting research looking at um, the violence associated with certain kinds of markets, Mm. the the sort of more recent form of drug Mm -hmm. market, I suppose, is uh, what's been termed county lines. And this is a market uh, where there's been some really interesting research written about it uh, by UK uh, drug researchers. And we see like high rates of coercion, of violence, in terms of suppliers wanting to expand their territory by sort of, you know, elbowing their way into um, other territories, Mm. other sort of uh, consumer bases. But amongst the people I studied, let's say over that six-year period, Mm. um, violence, rates of violence were low. They weren't completely absent, and where you do see it, and there was, you know, there was, um, the threat of violence was needed, Um, quite a lot actually Mm. and that's because a large proportion a large number of the consignments of drugs that are given to drug dealers are on credit they're Mm. on tick so if I give you 1500 pounds worth of cocaine Mm. odds are you're good for it but over a six-year period if I'm supplying to over 20 people there are going to be people who default on that who don't repay uh, you know the the credit consignment Mm. so very quickly, if two people don't pay me £1,500, that's my entire profit gone for that week. The, and I can't go to, if I'm a, a, a drug supplier, I can't go to courts, to a civil court to say this individual owes me money. I can't mm. go to a small claims court. There's no way 
to redress any of these sort of problems that exist within any marketplace mm. and within the drugs market it is threats of violence you know it's mm. almost sort of there has to be some consequence particularly when you're talking about larger sums mm. um and often it's sort of resolved through threats and intimidation but yeah there was there was violence there was sort of heavy-handed tactics there was uh, people who who say would kick in the door of a drug dealer who owed them money or mm. threaten their parents and say your son owes us this amount of money for all mm. this cocaine mm. but you could focus on these uh stories that are few and far between and paint a picture of this being a market like all the others that we anticipate being linked to violence where violence runs throughout but they were so few and far between that actually it'd be wrong to characterize these markets in that way. These were largely peaceful markets, particularly when it came to consumers and suppliers, so the mm. drug user and, and their dealer, where even if you owed, if a, a user owed the dealer £100, the dealer would just, there were other forms of recourse. You never supplied to them again. Mm. You tell your your network of dealers who you're friendly with don't supply to them they're bad for the money and they owe me money mm. so there's there's other ways around in that instance you wouldn't see violence not in these markets mm. um but if you're talking about larger sums then occasionally yeah there would be but i think one thing that i that really stood out for me i was out with a group of the, the dealers around bars in one of the towns so this research was undertaken largely in two locations, one town and one city, both of which I keep anonymized. Mm. And we went out in this town, which has got a big nighttime economy, lots of bars, lots of pubs, a few clubs. Mm -hmm. And in that one night that I went out with these dealers, it struck me that in one bar, I saw more acts of violence than I had witnessed in, say, the five years of fieldwork prior to that. And then in that whole night, we saw more violence as we went to other bars. I mean, this you know town has a, a vibrant nighttime economy linked yeah. to it, a, a bit of a violent, um, violent mm. uh, scene. But yeah, the idea that actually in the highly policed nighttime economy of a town, which yeah. is supplying a drug, but you know through regulation and with police there, I saw I saw far more violence than I ever did uh, in total in the yeah. illicit drugs trade. And we're talking about all you know kinds of drugs being dealt. We're talking about different levels. That idea that that really is when I realised this is a peaceful market for the most part. You can't eliminate violence. It has to threats of violence have to exist, but it just wasn't there in any great quantity to sort of typify it. But if you talk about one of the most uh, profitable drug markets which is going to be the supply of recreational drugs to students mm. so students have some of the highest rates of drug consumption in the UK and in the United States but these markets despite their profitability are largely peaceful arenas mm. the people who supply uh, cannabis you know even in terms of uh, delivery services again we're not going in in a city center we're not going to see violence um, between suppliers fighting over turf necessarily mm. um so yeah i mean we do see violence in many drug markets but that is more indicative of the culture and the wider context in which that market manifests itself rather than drug markets per se and again just so in showing the strength of the methods that you have used like studying people over a period of time you know really does get to 
understand those networks better. And that's why we need research like yours that really looks across things over a period of time and within groups to understand it, because we need to understand it, definitely. Um, so you kind of touched on this, but I guess like we have a fascination. We have got a, you know, criminology is probably one of the most popular degrees that we've uh, that we've got in the UK, probably. Um, and we know that, um, you know, lots of people come to us as students. And when we tell people about what we do, we're criminologists. Um, people will often say, you know, oh, I'm so fascinated by crime. And usually, you know, they'll talk about things like Breaking Bad or Sopranos, um, what are the narcos, you know, people are interested in, in these kind of um, crime dramas, organized crime dramas. And that, so usually there, there's like, there's a Mr. Big at the top, there's Pablo Escobar, Tony Soprano, and then it's a hierarchy. So is that what you found? You kind of touched on this before, but is that what you found within your research, that there is that hierarchy? No. And I think, um, I think it's pretty conclusive, not just with my research, but again, looking at, if you look at uh, the social network analysts, so these are people who affect researchers who study criminal networks and plot it out and use quite uh, sophisticated software to look at these networks. So not only my research, but the research of others who study org organised crime. You would say that, no, what characterises it isn't this rigid hierarchical structure. It is flexibility. It is the fact that many trading relationships are short-term, time-limited. Well, that doesn't mean that that is going to be that... Uh, link will be continuing for the next 12 months. Many relationships are like that, and that's why within these markets we are seeing this continually fluctuating, mutating set of relationships um, where people will be involved in supply with certain co-offenders for a year, two years, and then they aren't for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And because this is true of most of the individuals or many of the individuals, this is why we see this continuing, this dynamic marketplace, not a rigid structured one. And part of the reason may be because a rigid hierarchical model, if you are law enforcement, is far easier to target. Mm. You know, that idea of you cut the, the head off the snake and then or you take out the lieutenants. Mm. So Let's say that these rigid hierarchies did exist, maybe in larger cities in the UK or in America. Well, successful police operations, because these, these networks would be far easier to map out and to target and to bring down. Well, potentially, organically, through natural selection, you get these messy networks that you are really difficult to penetrate. Mm. If I arrest one drug dealer... He might only be able to tell me who supplies him and who he supplies. He knows no one else in that network. Mm. And because the network is continually evolving, even if he knew some people who were above his own supplier, that might have changed in a year's time. So trying to disrupt these networks is really difficult. And in a way that probably is, explains their resilience, the fact that they are so fluid and flexible. If you take out a key player mm. in a supply network, the network just evolves and yeah. works around that. Adapts. Yeah. And it's also true that actually a lot of the mid-level traffickers, again, not just talking about my research, they don't start off at the bottom and then work your way progressively up into importation. Often you are just structured with, positioned within the right network. So you know through chance the, the right connections that you can be like, oh, I, I can enter a, um, 
the mid-level or I can help import drugs through a legal company that I've got. So even if you do get to the middle levels, it's not this idea that you, like you say, earn your stripes and progressively work your way up until you're at these higher echelons of the supply chain. It's simply a consequence of, yeah. But it also isn't as a good a story to tell if you're, I don't know, writing a miniseries or trying to do a documentary. And I'll hold my hands up and say some of my favourite all-time programmes are things like uh, The Wire, The Sopranos. I mean, it's cliché to be a criminologist and say you like these things. Narcos, I love them. And, and again, that's not to say that those structures aren't based, or, you know, those depictions aren't based on uh, a reality. But the idea that that is, again, a universal depiction of crime, organised crime or drug trafficking is wrong. It's probably the more interesting element, which is why these stories are told, but it's not representative. And again, just to kind of reiterate that it's important to look at the whole market as well and to look at, as you say, um, the reasons behind it, the, con the context, the deprivation, you know, cities going through deindustrialization. You know, the thing that I really uh, found fascinating about your the time of period of time you did your research was that it was around, um, you know, huge austerity measures. And you talked about that, didn't you, in, in terms of like 2008, 2009. So, yeah, drugs and drug income provided a really useful income to guys who didn't have much access to this money at a time of great financial uncertainty and precarity. Um, yeah, so from their perspective, they used it quite rationally. They, they stopped dealing when they no longer needed to, when their contracts picked up or where they found work, stable work, maybe in another town or another city, which meant they were no longer connected to their immediate supply network. They were willing to walk away from drug dealing if they could get the, the job they wanted. But that took time. And, you know, their sort of journey into getting that kind of desirable, stable work and employment does take a while and particularly in the wake of a recession so it, that's also the importance of why following them up over several years was useful because it allowed you to say these people were striving to be successful financially but also in terms of their occupational lives and if you'd have just studied them at age 23 and thought look at these guys commit like this big group of people all committed to, to drug dealing they look like they're trying to get more involved in importation or whatever else, you might sort of wrongly categorise them as committed criminals when really you study them over a prolonged period and you look at all the ways that they're trying to improve their financial position but, also, but predominantly through legal commitments and legal investments and endeavours, then suddenly it's hard to be as judgmental of these individuals or you become more empathetic. You understand that they are just grafting and that this is just one of the really you know um the drugs economy is always hiring doesn't matter if there's a recession it's non-discriminatory so if you have a criminal conviction or you're of a certain you know from a certain postcode area that might get discriminated against well the drug economy is always there so the drugs economy offered these guys and offers many people something which is desirable a readily accessible decent income um, and yeah and, and you can use it however you want you can like sweeten your life um, through all these forms of consumption you can use it as a safety net to pay for your bills your council tax the running of your car during times of underemployment 
or you can use it to try and set up, uh, establish, you know, legitimate uh, businesses. So it was quite broad ranging in that sense. So what might be then the implications of either decriminalisation or legalisation on the people that you've interviewed? So decriminalisation, on paper, you would say would be fantastic for these guys because decriminalising it means there is less of a deterrent for the user to possess and to use drugs. So there is the argument that maybe use among the general population would increase. And if use increases, there is more consumer demand. So anyone willing to supply that demand, it's good from a financial perspective. But if you look at, it's not as clear cut as that. And if you look at, you know, there's not a huge number of countries that have, well, Portugal is, is the, you know, uh, De- decriminalized uh, all drugs and then they saw kind of a reduction in use of, of many drugs so you would say well okay then so decriminalization might not necessarily significantly increase the consumer base but for them um, from that perspective there is the potential that you would increase users and therefore make it more profitable on the other hand if police resources are no longer being directed towards consumers and instead there is a concerted effort to target the supply chains, then maybe there would be uh, a more risk of uh, yeah, legal enforcement, reprisal, and getting caught, basically. So, you know, there's no absolute clear answer. It could go either way. There could be more uh, resources diverted to taking down dealers, or there could also be an increase in consumer demand. So that would have some impact, and who knows you know precisely which way that would go where I could say with a bit more certainty what would affect them legalization so that's the regulated supply of these drugs if this were to become a globalized supply chain these people would be cut out from it they would not be operating in the illicit drugs trade unless they get a foothold in soon enough and they're able to you know they've got some business acumen about them but really, there's every chance that, say, you know, with the regulation of cannabis, you have huge, you know, this is a hugely um, profitable market that's emerging. It isn't like being monopolized by former criminals. This is being monopolized by investment firms who are investing in big business. And it's, it's the usual people who will benefit. It won't be, you know, the, the sort of uh, the working classist grafters who are looking for money to to you know, elevate their lives or to give them investment capital, they'll be wholly cut out of it. In the same way that if you, again, try and open up a sandwich shop, you're in competition with national companies like Subway that have these big logistical supply chains that can do so much more and have been in the business for, for decades. How can you compete as a, you know, what the Americans would call a moms and pops business enterprise? You can't. Small business enterprise is what generally has been suffering uh, through globalization. Like, for instance, trying to open up a a bar or a pub now, you know, there's every chance that you won't succeed. You're certainly not going to be doubling up on your investment. The thing with cocaine, for instance, let's say you buy a gram, for instance, at £20 a gram and you sell it for £40 a gram. If it's cheap, crappy cocaine, if it's better quality, obviously it's more. But you are effectively doubling your money. So... You buy £1,000 worth of cocaine, you sell it for 2000 you've made a £1,000 net profit. That doesn't work in the drinks industry or the sandwich industry or, you know, 
other industries uh, that people might enter into. So yeah, I don't think these people will succeed. So if you want to get rid of the, the criminal drugs market, I'm sure there would always be a black market anyway. Yeah. Would these people enter into it? Mm, possibly not. Would they succeed legally if there was a legal drugs market in, you know, in becoming drug distributors in a legal market? I don't think so. So, yeah, you know, if, if legalization were to occur, I would anticipate that you'd be removing this, like I say, this economy that is at the minute um, pretty accessible, yeah. always hiring, non-discriminatory. And, yeah, it would be, just become another big business thing. You know, these yeah. people... Uh, and we've got this idea that it'll be this utopia, that legalization will bring this utopia, I guess, that... You know, consumers will know what's in their drugs and, um, you know, it will be, you know, be legal. The stigma will reduce all that kind of stuff. But actually, um, you know, it will be run by big businesses. Everything is. Yeah. But and, and so I'm on board with all those things. I'm on board for the drugs being distributed, being as safe as possible. The idea that they're supplying drugs, that they don't know what's in it. Yeah. You know, um, the people involved in the supply of steroids, anabolic steroids, um, cocaine, whatever, the reality is, you know it's going to be uh, not exactly what it says on the tin. It's covered mm. stuff. So I'm in favour of the drugs people are taking because I'm concerned about public health, yeah. that they are as clean as possible. I, you know, I also don't think that it's right to criminalise these individuals and give them long sentences for supplying drugs that most people consume in a way that, you know, isn't detrimental mm. um, so I guess my my issue is with what globalization has done to the average worker and the yeah. fact that this this sort of concentration of profits in, in, in any industry now mm. we see across the globe and it's more that's the thing that sort of I, I suppose gets to me if there was more if society was structured in a way that there were more independent business owners there was more opportunity and mm. you know wages were increasing and the sort of money you could earn from a legal job that's not the trend that we're going in this is why we're seeing this concentration of wealth in the top one percent mm. and that's kind of the drugs economy is kind of separate from that at the minute but as soon as it's legalized yeah as with everything you know you, you sort of so, squeeze out the profits from everyone in the market other than the people who who own the biggest share but I think what is the stereotype that's there? If most listeners, most people, close their eyes to a... If we talked about a crack dealer or a coke dealer or a weed dealer, close their eyes and envisage it, what do they picture? You know, my thing is that there is such an ingrained notion uh, of what the, the dealer is that we see it perpetuated in the media, we see it perpetuated in political discourse, we see it perpetuated in representation on, you know, documentaries or in whatever. And it's this idea that there is still this uh, link, largely to, to males, but often uh, males of colour, black males or minority ethnic males, um, are often emblematic of the drugs trade. And I think that's that's an enduring myth and has, you know, you know, in terms of race and drugs, this is the two have been closely linked for, you know, a hundred years. But I still think that that is a 
uh, a stereotype that is hugely problematic. I think it's part of the reason why we see such discrepancies in the criminal justice system. But the idea that, yeah, we have a view of what these people are and we see them as bad and predatory and people of colour. Um, and there was one thing that I remember having read and I just quickly, I don't think I'd ever said it to you before, but in 1999, the Police Federation ran a campaign to encourage a greater number of recruits from black and minority ethnic backgrounds with a ironic poster. And the poster read, what do you call a black man in a BMW? A police sergeant on patrol. And this whole poster acknowledged, this whole recruitment poster acknowledged the dominant stereotype. And I know this was in 99, so we're talking 20 years ago. But I think this, this dominant picture still uh, perseveres. The idea of largely people of colour, who were poor, who were ruthless, who were predatory, and are bad people. And this kind of allows any discussion on reforms of drugs to ignore and pathologise the act of supply um, and kind of, yeah, look more favor favourably upon users who are seen as, if not victims, seen as rational, uh, good people, and yet juxtapose this against dealers who they often see as outsiders, predatory and, and, yeah, again, pathologically different to us. And really, there isn't much to separate the drug user from the dealer in many ways, yeah. or even much to distinguish me from drug dealers in terms of how they spend most of their time or things that they're interested in. Yeah. So I just think, you know, we talk, this whole thing is about stereotype or challenging it and looking at consumer-supply relationships. And I just think that there is still this dominant view of a predatory supplier who preys on vulnerable, victimised users. And I think there still needs, there just needs to be more research, a weight of research that shows that clearly isn't representative of the entire drugs economy. And it's broader than that. So what's your utopia then? So thinking about kind of drug policy, what do you want? What, what, what do you think would be the best thing? As with everything in life, I guess... Uh, I had quite rigid views when I was younger in terms of, you know, um, drug policy and in terms of all kinds of policy. And unfortunately, the only best answer I can give is I've, I only see more problems the older I get and I, I've become less sure in my viewpoint. And I'm still trying to work out what this utopia, as I would foresee it, as I've got older, I'm, I'm trying to steer away from being too pessimistic with things. But there's a part of me when you look at, you know, look at things that, um, yeah, it's, it's easy to, to not have some utopian vision of what things could be, but maybe, you know, characterise yourself as a realist and think, really, you know, is there going to be this big change? There's so many people with vested interests for whatever reason, nefarious or not, law enforcement who benefit from, you know, particularly in the United States, from all the money there is from policing drugs and uh, drug dealers or users and the uh, prison industrial complex in the States. But even in the UK, you know, there's, there's so many people who benefit from having this sort of um, poltergeist, that is the, the drug user, increasingly the dealer. Um, would legalisation fix it again? I'm kind of coming from an area which was working class and looking at people who, I should also stress, almost all the drug dealers are studied 
desisted by the time they hit their 30s, or a few were still involved in different levels. But these guys were striving, and they used drug dealing as just another way to help elevate their chances of success in their mind. And most of them succeeded legitimately and left, um, you know, desisted from crime, which is common for most kinds of offenders, not just drug dealers anyway. Um, and there's a part of me that would think, what would happen if they didn't have investment capital for business or accessibility to it? What would happen if they didn't have this non-discriminatory, always hiring market? The way I see it is they benefited from it. Did they benefit from the misery of those people that they were supplying? Most of them weren't. Most of the consumers, at least who I met, were non-problematic in terms of they regulated their use. Um, there were some who were you know, serious users. But there's a part of me that's like, I just wish there was more financial, uh, more opportunities within the labour market or more opportunities uh, if you want to be an entrepreneur to have, you know, a, a shot at something. I feel historically, in the last hundred years, there were many other times where if you wanted to establish a business, um, have a little, you know, what I said before, moms and pops store, mm. you could do it. And that could provide a sustainable income for you and your family. Um, there were well-paid, unionized, pretty stable working class jobs. And obviously they were completely eroded during deindustrialization when we outsourced all our labor abroad. Well, what's a working class guy going to do then? So this is kind of the thing. My, I, I think sometimes less about drug policy per se and more about the, the strains and the things that were prompting these guys to supply drugs, some of their users, even the serious ones, what prompts them to use it? What's the social conditions in which I found these people being willing to sell drugs or to use violence to enforce debts? And it's the fact that there's just, there seems to be a diminishing amount of opportunities for good employment or good entrepreneurship. And for whatever reason, that's the thing that I focus on. And I just think more about what is it that improves people's lives it's stability that often comes from having a stable job. It's meaningful work. Having something meaningful in your life that bonds you to other people, your co-workers, where you're involved in work that you think is purposeful and you get real pleasure from, then maybe there'd be less op like desire to use drugs. Um, you know, this is, this is a way of hustling, isn't it? This is a way of, uh, as you say, making good and, you know, surviving in life. So... If you look at the, the literature, particularly the stuff published by the, you know, the American economists who've looked at wage returns from drug dealing, whatever else, it's, it's clear. It's like it, is a, it props them up. They aren't committed um, to the drug dealing ethos or, you know, being a gangster very often. This is just this provides them the financial opportunity they can't get from elsewhere. This allows them to either subsidize their lives or improve the quality of life. Um, but yeah, you know, the idea that drug dealers are this greedy, profit-driven, predatory, whatever else, they are often a response to the broader conditions in which they find themselves. And those conditions are the things that kind of is where I'm pessimistic. Thank you so much for um, being our guest on our fourth episode of our podcast. just want to say, Joe Rogan, this has been a dream come true. <laughs> Welcome back, Mel. We didn't have you on the, the episode last month. You were sorely missed, oh. but great to have you back. Uh -huh. Thank um, you, Rebecca. Great to be back. <laughs> so that was a great chat with, with Mike. 
And I think it's really interesting how those drug policy discussions kind of shifted from, you know, just thinking about alternative models like, you know, is it decriminalisation, is it legalisation? And actually that there was a, a kind of broader understanding about access and opportunities in the labour market, broader inequalities within society and moving that kind of conversation on to looking at the distinctions between use um, or possession and, and supply. So um, with your expertise in this field, um, yeah, it'd be great if you could answer some questions, because I'm sure listeners will be really interested in, in thinking about the legal distinctions there and what that kind of means. Criminal law distinguishes then between possession and supply. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, sure. So I'll I'll try and avoid getting too technical here, but 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 generally, like the Misuse of Drugs Act, it does have distinct offences. So possession is distinct from possession with intent to supply, uh, and also covered by the Misuse of Drugs Act is supplying or offering to supply a controlled drug. And as probably listeners will be aware, supply is seen as a much more serious offence than possession. Um, And interestingly as well, we also have the Psychoactive Substances Act of 2016, uh, and that doesn't criminalise possession. Unless you are in a prison custodial setting, then potentially, you know, you could get done for possessing novel psychoactive substances, which we know as legal highs as well. Uh, But yes, supply still is, importation still is, other offences under the Psychoactive Substances Act still very much apply. Yes, so there is a clear distinction between criminal law and, you know, as Mike and I were talking about as well, there's there's definite, you know, there seems to be a distinction how we view those actors within the drug supply market as well. So kind of, so, you know, talking about Misuse of Drugs Act, so that covers substances like cannabis, mm-hmm. like ecstasy, like cocaine, and Psychoactive Substances Act. What, what Are there any kind of, I know that covers all substances that aren't covered under that act, yep. but is uh, what, you know, like which substances does it, does it cover as well, or what are the main ones? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. So essentially, the Psychoactive Substances Act is a bit of a, a crazy act, really, because it covers absolutely everything, unless uh, it's part of a specified exemption. So the exemptions are any substance that's covered by the Misuse of Drugs Act, alcohol, nicotine, medicines. So so essentially every psychoactive substance is forbidden under the Psychoactive Substances Act unless it's covered by one of these sort of specified exemptions, even though those substances are arguably psychoactive in themselves. So the sort of substances that you might think, you know, would apply here, I suppose, is like spice. You know, when when we had like all the issues with spice going on a few years ago, um, there was an issue with sort of poppers and whether they were covered, like nitrous oxide, ayahuasca. Um, Yeah, any sort of psychoactive substance where it's debatable as to whether it's covered under the Misuse of Drugs Act um, Mm. or isn't covered by the Misuse of Drugs Act. uh, Yeah or form one of those other exemptions it applies yeah yeah and that's a kind of like so that the government can stay in control in terms of different substances that were coming on the market for example as you say like spice and like 1p lsd was became quite popular in kind of psychedelic communities as well because it wasn't that different was it to lsd but it wasn't covered under that yeah 
Definitely. So before these sort of acts came out, you know, there was this huge sort of scare around legal highs, wasn't there? Because there was a lot of people that were, you know, kind of altering the chemical compounds to make them very similar to the substances controlled by the Misuse of Drugs Act or the International Drug Conventions. But they were very slightly different so that they weren't covered by that, you know, standard legislation, if you like. So the government wanted this sort of catch all approach because I think they were a little bit, you know, scared about the, the kind of array of substances that were that were coming on the market that weren't covered yeah yeah going back to kind of criminal law um and and sentencing so what does the court take into account when sentencing you yeah um, with all these different kind of distinction between possession with intent possession yeah okay so it very very much matters whether the drug in question and this is the drugs covered under the misuse of drugs act whether they are classified as a class A drug, a class B drug and a class C drug. And I'm sure our listeners will be aware of that. You know, most people are aware of this sort of classification system that we have in the UK. There's a huge issue here, though, because, you know, as a lot of drug policy researchers are aware, that classification system isn't based on any evidence. It's been decided in a really arbitrary way and it's not really based on the level of harm associated with these substances. So I think it's important to say that because actually how you're sentenced is very much based on whether it's A, B or C, but it doesn't correlate with the level of harm that these substances uh, can cause to either yourself or to other people. Mm. Um, And in terms of deciding what sentence you should get as to whether you're possessing a substance or supplying a substance, um, we have a body called the Sentencing Council, and that body is responsible for developing sentencing guidelines in relation to a variety of offences for the courts and for judges to implement. And just this month, actually, new guidelines for drug offences have come into effect um, and they set out the sort of minimum and maximum sentences that you can get, depending on whether you are possessing or supplying um, certain substances. So the reason why they sort of updated the guidelines for judges and for the courts is because um, they wanted to try and reflect modern drug offending. So the last guidelines came out in 2012 um, and they wanted to try and provide a bit more clarity around the Psychoactive Substances Act of 2016 as well. And they also started to recognise that, you know, that as we know now, especially thanks to the Black Lives Matter movement, there are these huge disparities in sentencing outcomes uh, depending on your ethnicity. So they have revised the guidelines to try and get the courts to take into account that fact and be aware of that when sentencing. But because it's only just come in, you know, we'll, we'll see what actually happens there. Um, and again, to try and reflect modern drug offending, they have changed the guidelines to reflect the fact that ecstasy is becoming more pure. Um, and also uh, this idea that actually one cannabis plant can yield a lot more cannabis than they uh, perhaps previously anticipated as well. There's a lot more domestic growing operations that have been happening in more recent years. So just to give you an example there, the um, the limit for what they considered a domestic scale operation was nine plants. So they initially said that if you just have nine plants in like any one grow spot, that shouldn't uh, be classed as, um, uh, you know, like a commercial scale operation. So it won't attract a prison sentence. Now they've reduced that to seven plants. So they, they are reacting, I suppose, to what is actually going on uh, on the ground. 
Um, but you know that that does that that has a massive impact on people, doesn't it? Particularly with cannabis social clubs. You know, I've worked quite closely with some cannabis social clubs, and I know clubs that are adhering to the guidelines that have been put forward by the UK CSE, the UK's cannabis social clubs. They've actually advised you that you know just to have nine plants in any one kind of grow site, so that you won't attract a prison sentence. And obviously, these guidelines potentially are going to affect that. So for people that are in the know, I suppose, or trying to work around these guidelines to, uh, to I suppose, try and like mitigate any sentence that they get, um, yeah, these, these sort of changes will impact them. And I think it's really interesting what you're saying as well, and what we've just seen historically, that whilst drug debates are going on, drug policy debates are going on, and reform conversations are going on, sentencing guidelines just keep getting stricter mm. that's, that's the kind of thing that from it seems to me what you're saying here is that things are getting more strict rather than there's being a relaxation in these kind of sentencing guidelines that ecstasy purity that kind of thing is that correct would you say yeah I, I mean in, in some in some respects I would say that's correct I would say the main point to get across here though is that the quantity and purity of the substance is really important when it comes to sentencing um, and actually, perhaps it's not been as, as strict and it's not been as severe in some respects, because actually the, there is perhaps more of a distinction now that's made between social supply that Mike was talking about and more serious supply. Um, so another thing that matters when it comes to sentencing you, just to give you a brief overview of this first, uh, mm -hmm. it dep what really matters is your role in the offending. So you have to think about whether the person has undertaken a leading role. So are they involved in commercial scale dealing of large amounts of, say, a class A substance? You're much mm -hmm. more likely to get a higher level prison sentence there. Or are you involved in a much lesser role and you're just doing it because you're supplying your mates and you're not wanting to make any sort of profit or gain from it or little profit or gain? And I think what the guidelines have done now, there is a kind of interesting, very interesting, slight distinction between the 2012 guidelines, which were the previous guidelines, and the guidelines that have just come into force now, because there's a recognition that if you're just sort of socially supplying your mates, um, then you would have a, a lower sentence if there's sort of no financial gain and you're not doing it for profit. Now, under the 2021 guidelines, there is this there is this slight recognition that actually there might be a limited financial gain and you should still be sentenced you know you could still have a reduction in your sentence there um or a lower sentence even if you are making a slight financial gain because as mike said you know very often when you are looking at social supply uh there could potentially be like a small financial gain, but not much really, because it is just sort of covering your own drugs potentially. So there yeah. is that very slight recognition. You know, the mm. law is very technical. So even any change in any of the wording could have some implications down the line. But with these guidelines only just coming into effect, I guess we'll have to wait and see what, what happens there. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, it, it, you know, like it's just it's really interesting, isn't it, about those distinctions and maybe how they're, they're changing and how that can impact people. Because, you know, we should say that this these, this conversation is in context of our survey. We found that, you know, people, most people source drugs from people that they know. So friends, family, 
maybe a friend of a friend, maybe your spouse, your partner. Mm-hmm. So cannabis, for example, you know, 34% said that they got it from, you know, somebody who's close to them. So like a friend or a family member or a partner. Um, and a thir- further like 13% from um, a friend of a friend. So we're looking at like nearly half of people who the last time they used cannabis, it was from their own networks. It was from people that they they know and not necessarily, um, you know, a dealer that they don't know. So in terms of cannabis, only 4% um, had got from a dealer that they didn't know. Um, and you kind of the same with cocaine and ecstasy. You know, we're looking around kind of 25% of people or a third of people are getting from, from people within their kind of quite tight social networks. So this is really important for people and important mm-hmm. for people thinking about, you know, the legal implications as well. Um, and, and again, thinking about, uh, we asked the question about whether people had given or supplied a drug to another person, even if that was a small amount or even if it was for free. And 81% said that they did, you know, like, so we can see the law is kind of quite technical around this. Yeah. Um, but this for, for people's and people's reality is a little bit more fluid. Um, and that's something that we want to kind of discuss and debate because we know that most people who take drugs don't come into contact with the police and they're not stopped and searched um, and they've not been found in possession. So therefore, these legal distinctions, they just they might not know. And I think it's important to kind of um, highlight those uh, when discussing drug policy. Yeah. And they might not even see it as supply. You know, I think most people, if they are just sharing it with their friends or their partner or family, they wouldn't see it like they'd probably see it as like gifting or, you know, so it's not necessarily seen in this kind of legalistic way. Um, yeah, and I think the law is quite technical here. And I also think, you know, judges themselves, the courts themselves have been quite confused here as to uh, what amounts to possession, what amounts to possession with intent to supply, what amounts to supply. So there have been court cases that have gone all the way up to the Court of Appeal to try and uh, uh, deal with this, this sort of issue. So sometimes, particularly the thorny issue of when actually it's friends who are taking turns to make the purchase with the view to supply in their their own friendship groups. Um, and there's been a number of cases that actually say in this situation, although it, you know, it looks like possession with intent to supply, it doesn't really go beyond possession based on the, the case facts. So they'll be charged with like joint possession or possession instead. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it can actually be quite a complicated technical issue. And I don't think the law really reflects what's happening on the ground, does it? So yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. And um, yeah, and that's something that we would, uh, you know, we want to kind of discuss with people. And in next uh, month's episode as well, we'll um, we'll discuss more about criminal justice and the impacts of that for people. Yeah, so great. Thank you very much, Melissa. And um, so if people are interested yeah, I mean, if you, I suppose if you're interested in finding out how uh, other countries have approached this in relation to the distinction between sort of possession and low level supply, um, and as, uh, particularly in relation to decriminalisation, because decriminalisation is obviously decriminalising possession, but you could yeah. still be prosecuted for a supply offence. And there's very, there's a number of countries all around the world that have implemented this policy. And mm. the charity, the drugs charity release has got a brilliant document that covers that. 
uh, and various countries have their own sort of threshold system. So if you go beyond having a certain quantity of a certain substance, then you might be charged with supply. Otherwise, it would be possession, which is decriminalised. But potentially, you know, you, there could be other um, sanctions that you might you might face there. Uh, and then I suppose the other thing I would say is if you are interested in finding out the really sort of technical, nitty gritty <laughs> aspects yeah. of the distinction between possession, supply and the sort of thresholds and the quantities for various substances, then go on the Sentencing Council's web page and have a look at the new guidelines for drug offences that just came out this month. So Brilliant. Well, thank you for discussing that hot off the press. We shall uh, see you next time. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> And what a great episode that was. We hope you enjoyed. A reminder that we're conducting research and we want to hear from you. So if you've had drug-related experiences in the past and you're interested in getting involved in the research, then please visit our website, www.drugpolicyvoices.co.uk. So at the moment, you can speak about your personal, individual experiences through a blog, poetry, or an individual interview. Now, we will be launching our workshop discussion groups, which is also part of our research. So to find out more about that, just keep updated on our Instagram and our Twitter at Drug Policy Voices, or join our mailing list. See you next time. We've reached the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. We'd like to credit and thank Anna Duffy at A Duffy Design for our logo and branding. This podcast was produced by Neil Scott. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs>